passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for joining us for worship. This morning, we're going to be again in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 26. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud. We're going to start in the second half of verse 18. So please follow along. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means more fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, as we, uh, as we consider this passage this morning, I, I'm just struck by Paul's heart here. And I pray that through your Spirit, you would stir within each and every one of us this passion that is just like Paul's, that makes the honor of Jesus Christ the, the foremost thing in our minds at, at every time and in every season. God, I ask that you would help us to be a people who increasingly grow in our desire to be with Jesus and our desire to make much of him with our lives. And so, God, we ask that you would use this text that you would use Paul's words written thousands of years ago to a church on the other side of the world to transform our hearts and lives right now through the power of your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a beautiful passage, isn't it? I, I love uh, Paul's heart here. I think this is one of the most personal writings that we have from the Apostle Paul, where he really just lays it all out there. What are his motivations? What are his wants, his desires with his life? This church in Philippi, they've, they've heard that Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and so they've sent him a gift, and this letter is Paul's response to them, saying, hey, this is how things are going for me. And last week, we, we looked at the, the passage right before this, and we saw that, that Paul is giving his perspective on his imprisonment. He's expressing how he can have joy even in the midst of these difficult circumstances because of his perspective. He's looking for ways that the gospel is going forth. But this morning, we, we see not just Paul's perspective, but also his passion. Paul pulls back the curtain and he gives us a little bit of insight into his own life and, and how is it that he can have so much joy in his life in spite of all the things that are going on. And I want you to just imagine for a moment that you've never read the Bible before. You've, you've never read or, or heard or seen this passage, this verse before. And then you come across the words of verse 21. In verse 21, Paul says, To live, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
And without the context of the Bible, without the context of, of what Paul is doing for uh, the, the spread of the gospel, without the context of the promises that God has given to us in his word, can you think of a more ridiculous statement, especially in our culture today? Our culture that, that denies what we can't see, a culture that is, is purely just humanistic, materialistic, to say death is gain is one of the most ridiculous statements in our culture today. Indeed, death is great loss today if we don't have the foundation of what we see in God's word. How can we, as Christians, as those who long to follow Jesus, how can we echo Paul's words? Many of us probably feel this tension as we read this passage that we, we want to be a people who say, yes, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And yet at the same time, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that death is a great loss. And so how can we get to a point where like the Apostle Paul, we can say as we look at our lives, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what I want us to look at this morning as, as Paul is, is explaining his own situation, his passion in life and his ministry. And I, I hope that, that we'll catch a little bit of that passion in our own lives. You see, in, in the book of Philippians, multiple times, Paul encourages the church to look to the example of those who have gone before them. In other words, to look for mature believers and say, okay, this is how they live. And so if I'm watching them, then I can actually learn how I should live, how I should think, what my priorities in life should be as well. Notice how Paul says it in Philippians chapter three, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And so here we have a question that we have to wrestle with. Do we want to grow in our faith? Do we want to live, uh, leave behind a, a legacy of faith with our family? Do we want to be people who, who stand unashamed before God? Because all of us will stand before God in one day, in the day of judgment. Do we want to stand before him unashamed? Do we want to be a people who are mature in our faith? The Apostle Paul, he actually writes this near the end of his life. Even if he's not going to be put to death imminently, he's got more years behind him than he does in front of him. He's getting into his upper 50s, maybe his early 60s at this point, and he's done ministry for decades. He's been faithful for decades. And so we can ask ourselves, well, what can we learn about being a faithful, mature follower of Jesus from the Apostle Paul, specifically in this passage. How might God use this passage to stir within each and every one of us a longing, a passion that we see just like Paul here this morning? That's what I want us to look at uh, as we work our way through this text. This text really just breaks into two different sections. First section focuses on Paul's resolve or what, is, what has he committed himself to do? with his life, what is his number one priority. And then we're also going to just look at what Paul's longing is. What is the motivation for that resolve? What is it that Paul wants more than anything else in his life? And I hope as we study these verses that we begin to see that same exact resolve, commitment, trajectory for our lives, as well as that same sort of longing 
with our lives. So let's go ahead and, and jump into our passage again. First, we're going to look at Paul's resolve, looking at verses 18 through 21. Again, we're going to start at the second half of verse 18. It says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, Paul's passage, his words here are tied very closely to what came before. That makes sense because we just picked up halfway through verse 18. The previous section, verses 12 through the first half of 18, Paul is talking about his joy. He's saying, you know what, in spite of my circumstances, I have joy because the gospel is going forth. Even though that I am in prison, the gospel is going forth to places it hasn't gone before. Even though some people are preaching in a way to try to discredit me, to to try to inflict me with pain, the gospel is still going forth. And because of that, I rejoice. Now we see a transition here in the second half of verse 18. Not only is Paul saying at this moment that I will rejoice. In fact, that's what he concludes in the beginning of verse 18. He says this, what then? In other words, in light of everything that's happening, what is my conclusion? Well, here's his conclusion. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Paul looks at his current circumstances, concludes that the gospel is going forth and says, you know what, I'm going to rejoice no matter what happens to me. I am so thankful for what Jesus is doing right now. But then we see this transition in the second half of verse 18. Paul is not saying I rejoice, but now he says, yes, and I will rejoice. This is a a commitment to future rejoicing in Paul's life. What is the cause for that commitment? Well, let's take a look at verse 19 where he gives us the answer. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So here is Paul, and he's confident that deliverance awaits him. And because of that confidence, he says, I can rejoice. I will commit myself to rejoice because I'm so confident that deliverance awaits me. Now the question for us, of course, is what does Paul have in mind when he says deliverance? Is Paul referring to this idea of deliverance from prison? That one day he is going to be released from prison. And and if you look at the, the context of this passage, I think that can make good sense. Verse 25 afterwards says this, convinced of this, and we'll get to what this, the this means later, but convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your joy, for your progress and joy in the faith. So here we see that Paul believes that he is going to continue to minister for the sake of the Philippians and others like him. So he could be referring to this deliverance from prison. But also at the same time, Paul could be referring to this ultimate deliverance, this deliverance in the sense of no matter what happens in his trial, whether he is condemned to death by Caesar or whether he is released, no matter what happens, he is confident that he has salvation, he has ultimate deliverance in Christ Jesus. And that seems to be the context or the, the thrust of the verse that immediately follows this. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, 
but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then Paul actually continues this, this strain of thought in verses 22 through 24. He gets into this hypothetical question or this situation where he says, you know, if I got to choose between life and death, if God put that into my hands, what would I choose? And so Paul seems to be at this place where he doesn't, he doesn't really know what is uh, awaiting him with his trial before Rome. And as you probably suspect, I, I, I think that um, Paul in here in verse 19, he's, he's not primarily referring to earthly deliverance, this confidence that, that he is going to be released from prison. That's not where his commitment, his resolve to rejoice is found. Instead, his resolve to rejoice that we see in verse, the second half of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice, that comes from a confidence that no matter what happens in this life, he stands secure before Jesus. Remember what Paul wrote just a few verses later. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. When he's giving thanks for the church in Philippi, notice what his confidence is. He says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's Paul saying essentially the same thing. Paul is saying that it's not just this confidence that that God has started a good work in the church in Philippi and he's going to bring it to completion, but also that God has started a good work in Paul and will also bring it to completion, will not forsake Paul even in his imprisonment. Now, one thing that we uh, can't immediately see, is is not immediately clear in our English translations, uh, is that Paul is actually making a reference to the Old Testament here. Paul is actually partially quoting from the book of Job here in verse 9 when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. This phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, is actually the exact same phrase that we see in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what Paul would have used when he was writing. The exact same phrase that is used in the book of Job, Job chapter 13, verse 16. Consider what Paul is saying, and I actually underline the, the phrase here that is um, the exact same thing that Paul is saying. Uh, he says this, Job, uh, let's start at the first half of verse 15. Though he, God, slay me, I will hope in him. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Remember the context of Job. Job is in the midst of this anguish and and this despair, and and he says that even if God himself is is going to bring death to him, his trust in God will remain. That this salvation that, that Job hopes in is that the godless shall not stand before God. In other words, Job expresses this confidence that no matter what happens in his life, Even if he is found guilty in the eyes of his friends, and if you're familiar with the the context of the book of Job, that's what a big chunk of Job is about. Job's friends basically saying, you are a terrible person and that's why you are suffering. But but Job says, you know what? Even if I am found guilty in in your eyes or in, in the world's eyes, I know that my salvation, my deliverance before God is secure. And one day I will stand before him and I won't be condemned 
but I will be justified. That is Job's heart cry. And that's the exact same thing that Paul is saying here in this passage when he talks about this resolve, this commitment to rejoice. He says, I might be found guilty in the court of public opinion. I might be found guilty in the courts of Caesar, but I will never be found guilty in the courts of heaven because of what Jesus has done for me. And if you're a Christian, do you know the same thing is true for you? Paul's, his future is, is uncertain at this moment. It's very possible that death is on the horizon. He doesn't know that he is going to be released from prison and then actually be sent uh, or be allowed to go and travel for a couple more years before he eventually uh, dies for the gospel. He doesn't know that. His death at this moment is a very possible thing, but he is able to com commit to this future rejoicing because even if death comes, it can't take away his ultimate hope. Paul's heart gets at the, the, the thrust of something that Jesus says in the Gospels. I want to read from Luke, Luke chapter 12. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. Jesus' words there, if you don't believe in the gospel, if you believe that this life is all that there is, that there is not a hope after death because of what Jesus has done for us, if you don't believe that, then Jesus' words here are, are nonsensical. They're, they're ridiculous to us. Jesus saying, don't fear those who can kill you because they can't do anything else. And from a purely secular uh, viewpoint, those are exactly the people who you need to fear. Paul should be terrified of Caesar because death is the worst possible thing in that approach of looking at the world. But if, like Paul, we believe in what Jesus has done, if you believe what Jesus even says here, then the worst thing that comes is not death. In fact, death can be great gain. As Paul himself says in verse 21, to live is Christ and death is gain. If we have that mindset, nothing else can harm us. So here we see Paul, he has this, this radical confidence that no matter what happens to him tomorrow, and, and he re recognizes that tomorrow might be the last tomorrow, that he might be put to death. Even though he recognizes that he doesn't know what, what tomorrow holds, he does know what will happen to him the day after his last tomorrow when he is finally united with his king, with his savior, with Jesus. And because of that, Paul's resolve, his, his primary concern with his life is not to preserve his life, it's not to win his freedom from these Roman courts, but it's something entirely different. That's what we see in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here in this verse, verse 20, we see the heart of Paul's resolve, the, the commitment that he has made to his, 
with his life. In light of this commitment to, to rejoice no matter what, for what we see in verse 18, in light of his confidence that, that nothing can change what he has in the person of Jesus, verse 19, his heart's cry is that no matter what may come, Jesus must be magnified in his life. Jesus must be magnified in his life. That's all that matters to Paul with his life. Every breath, every moment, he is concerned with making sure that Jesus is magnified, that Jesus is glorified, that Jesus is honored with his life and even with his death. In the first century, just like today, imprisonment would have been incredibly shameful. And and so it's ironic that, that Paul uses the language of shame here. Paul talks about not wanting to be ashamed. And in the, the mindset of, of the first century, if you were to read that and, and say, see that Paul says, uh, my desire, my longing, my hope is that I would not at all be ashamed, then you would think that he would follow that by saying, and so I am confident that I will be exonerated. That is my biggest concern in life is that I would be proved not guilty, that I would be found innocent in the court of law so that I would not be ashamed. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says something completely different. He doesn't care about his reputation. He only cares about the reputation of Jesus. You see, for Paul, being in prison for Jesus' name, that doesn't doesn't bring him shame. What would bring him shame, though, is shrinking back from the name of Jesus, of, of cowering in the midst of this time of suffering and this time of challenge. Paul, his resolve is clear here. His resolve is simply that Jesus be magnified no matter what the future may hold. No matter what the future may hold, that Jesus would be magnified. If the future holds his acquittal, then, then Paul, Paul rejoices. His, his, his prayer is the exact same thing as King David. King David, Psalm 34, he, he talks about his deliverance. He says this, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. If Paul's future holds death, then he echoes the words of, of Job. Job chapter one, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If Paul's future holds obscurity, because as Paul is sitting in prison, not able to effectively minister the way he would if he were out of prison, that other people, their ministry platforms, they flourish and grow and and they receive more and more followers. And Paul just kind of, he just fades into the background. If obscurity is what God has for him, what is Job's prayer? That's what we see from John the Baptist. John the Baptist says this in John, he must increase, Jesus must increase, but I must increase decrease. You see Paul's chief concern in his life, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the future holds, the the concern of his life is that his life would, would honor the one who gave his life for Paul. What about you? I recognize, I realize that I don't think any of us are facing the same sort of uncertainty that Paul is. I don't think any of us are, are facing or awaiting trial for the sake of the name of Jesus. And yet, Paul's resolve, his longing here, the beautiful thing about it is it's applicable to any and every situation in our life. 
Every night when we put our kids to bed, this is actually one of the chief prayers that we, we pray with them. We don't say, Lord, help us glorify your name tomorrow. We don't say, Lord, let the, the, let the name of Jesus be magnified in our lives because our kids don't really understand what that means. They don't understand really right now at this point of life what it means to glorify the name of the Lord, to magnify the name of the Lord. But, but this is such an important part of, of the Christian life that it's not something that we're willing to, to wait until later. And so we've talked about what, is it, what does it mean for us to, to live lives, and this is the language that we use, what does it mean for us to live lives that bring a smile to the face of Jesus? Because that's what it means to bring glory to the name of Jesus, to honor him, whether in life or in death. That we would live lives that bring a smile to the face of Jesus. And so we pray that every night with our kids. And that's really the, the heart of, of Paul here, this, this resolve, this commitment to honor Jesus in his body. That, that he would live in such a way that, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus sitting on his throne in the heavens who, who sees everything, that he would see our conduct, our, our thoughts, our behaviors, our choices with our lives. And in that moment, that we would act in such a way that he sees that and he smiles and says, well done. What of you? Facing hardship because of the pandemic? Where does concern for the name of Jesus being exalted, being glorified and magnified, where does that fit in your list of priorities? You frustrated because of a coworker or a classmate? You want to vent on social media about them? In what way does the honor of the name of Jesus Christ factor into your decisions? You're angry because something happened to you and it was unjust, it was, it was not fair to you. You want to just lash out in anger? Where does concern for the name of Jesus factor into your thought, your choices, your actions in all of life? You see, for Paul, his main concern here, the aim of his life is just to bring honor to the name of Jesus, no matter what faced him, no matter what the future held, that Jesus' name would be exalted and glorified in him. A couple weeks ago, I was reading in Titus for my personal devotions, and, and I, just, I was really struck by the words that Paul uses. He's giving instructions to slaves um, and, and bond servants in, in Titus chapter 2. And he says, this is how your conduct should be. This is how you should live your lives. But then he gives the motivation, and I just want to pick up on that motivation halfway through verse 10 of, of Titus chapter 2. Notice how he says, I, I love this language, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that language. I think it's just so powerful that it provides this incredibly helpful picture of how we live our lives. To, to be intentional and, and asking the, ourselves as, as we are faced with decisions and, and, and the thoughts and, and the choices, the actions, the words that we say, we ask ourselves, does this adorn the gospel? Does this make the gospel beautiful? 
Does it make it, it more attractive? Am I living in such a way that adorns the gospel or defiles the gospel? That's Paul's resolve that in everything that he would adorn the gospel, that he would, he would magnify Jesus in his life, in his death, in obscurity, in exaltation, in vindication, in condemnation, in plenty, and in lack, in all things, in all areas of life, that Paul would exalt Jesus, that he would live a life that brings a smile to the face of his Savior and King. What about you? You see, this concern that we have of Paul's life, this resolve in Paul's life, that's actually the foundation, or it ties closely into this longing, and that's what we'll look at in the rest of this passage, his, his greatest longing in his life. Let's pick up in verse 21 again, because it's kind of this hinge verse here between these two, passage, or two sections. It says this, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's longing is, is really just on display perfectly here in that first verse, uh, verse 21 here. Paul's longing is simply to be with Jesus. This is, this is what Paul longs for, to, to simply just be with Jesus. He's, he's so in love with Jesus. He, he, he's so in, enraptured with, with who Jesus is that his, his greatest longing in life is just simply to, to be with him. And he builds his entire life around that, this desire to honor him and then also to one day be with him. And, and that's why the uncertainty that is, is facing him here in this situation, he, he just says, you know what? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I, I'm content. Whatever happens, I am content because both options facing me, well, they're pretty great in the end because of Jesus. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? It's beautiful you know, you can feel the rhythm of it, even in our English translation, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But at the same time, I, and I, I normally don't, don't point this kind of stuff out, but it's just so powerful to me to actually um, consider what uh, Paul actually wrote in, in the Greek. In the Greek, the word is isn't there. And so literally what Paul writes is, for me to live Christ, to die gain. I actually wrote that in the margins of my Bible because I found it so powerful. It's almost like it's a question, isn't it? For me, to live Christ, to die, gain. It doesn't matter what faces me. It even rhymes in the original Greek. And so when we supply this word is, it gets, a, gets the point across, but also at the same time, other words could be supplied to get the, the thrust of what Paul is saying across to us today. For me, to live means Christ, and to die actually means gain. For me, to live depends upon Christ, and to die means to receive great gain. Paul's longing here is his entire life. It just centers around the person of Jesus. 
I want you to just consider for a moment Paul's Paul's perspective or his his context right now. His his future is unknown. He doesn't know what awaits him. He's, as I said earlier, he's, he's nearing the end of his life. He's been sitting in prison for at least three years Two of those, they were in Caesarea and then traveling to Rome, and now he's, in, he's imprisoned in Rome. And he's had a lot of time to think about this, a lot of time to think about the possibility of death before him. And so he's, he's worked this all out in his head. And even though he knows that his future is ultimately out of his hands, it's, it's in Caesar's hands because Caesar is making that decision, and more ultimately, this is, this is in God's hands, Paul, he, he embarks on this hypothetical question, verses 22 through 24. And he begins to say, you know what, what would I choose? Based off of my priorities in life, my commitments in life, what would I choose if I was given the choice? Would I depart? Would I, would I die? Would I get to choose that so that I could be with Jesus and see him face to face? Or would I choose to live? Would I be this person who, who continues to get to see others come to know Jesus? I get to continue to, to see the church flourish, that I get to continue to adorn the gospel with my life. And you can really see, sense this wrestling of Paul here in these verses. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means more fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But, but to remain in the flesh, it's, it's more necessary on your account. You can sense this wrestling, this going back and forth, can't you? So more than anything, Paul, he just, he wants to be with Jesus, but at the same time, his resolve is to make much of Jesus with his life. And so if he keeps on living, well, that, that means that he will have chance to help others like the Philippians live toward that exact same end, that they would make progress in their own faith, as we see in verses 25 and 26. And so he goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then we get to his conclusion in, in verses 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul concludes that his, his work here is not done. I don't think that Paul is saying this from a place of like special revelation that God has revealed to him that he will be released from prison. I think Paul is just looking at the facts And he says, you know, there's really no good reason. There's no just cause for Rome to put me to death. I I feel pretty confident that I will be released. And and I'm going to continue ministering as as long as God sees fit for me. As long as I have breath in my lungs, then there is work for me to do for the kingdom of God. That God still has a purpose for me. And that purpose includes you, church in Philippi. Because I want to see you grow. I want to see you make progress and joy in your faith. And, And I just... I just hope that we could have the same longing today as well, that, that we would see that as, as long as we are breathing, God has a purpose for us. God has work for us to do. Henry Martin, he was a, a missionary in the early 1800s from the UK, and he went to, to Iran and, and India and at one point in his life, he was asked by people about the uncertainty of his life as he went into these somewhat hostile places to the gospel. And, and I, I just love his response. He, he said this, If God has work for me to do, then I cannot die. If God has work for me to do, then I cannot die. 
And he, of course, he didn't say that as a license to go do dumb things. He, you know, he's not going to go skydiving without a parachute. He, he's not talking about that. Instead, he's, he's underscoring this beautiful confidence in two things. First, he's, he's expressing this confidence in the sovereignty of God, that, that God is in charge of his destiny. And that, yes, he has some sort of, of responsibility to live wisely and to not uh, waste or, 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 or squander his life, but that God ultimately is in charge— so he's, he's confident in the sovereignty of God, but also at the same time, he has this radical confidence that he has a purpose in life, that God has, has created him, that God is keeping him alive for a purpose. And it's not one that, that Henry Martin gets to choose or that Paul the apostle gets to choose. It's not something that Jordan gets to choose, but instead it's one that, that Jesus has chosen and that Jesus has given to each and every one of us. First Peter chapter two, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why has God given to us salvation? Well, so that we may proclaim his excellencies this person, this, this God who has called us out of darkness into wondrous light to, to live with him forever. And that's the longing of Paul's life as well. That as long as he is still breathing, he will continue to serve God faithfully. Yes, he, he longs to be with Jesus, but until then, he's going to make sure as many people hear about him until God calls him home. And again, I, I, just, I just pause and, and ask us the same question. What about us? What about us? What's the longing of our lives? One commentator, he calls Paul's statement here in verse 20, the, the heartbeat of Paul's life. I love that. It's, it's powerful language. What is, what is the heartbeat of your life? For Paul, it was to live as Christ and to die as gain. What is, what's the heartbeat of your life? What is the thing that drives your life? After the service this morning, I want, you to just, I want you to do a brief exercise on your own or as a family to take verse 20 and, and I want you to, you to take it and, and write out what it means for you to personalize it with your life. And, and actually, I think verse 21 is, is what I'm thinking of here. To, to personalize this verse and say, for me, to live is blank, and to die is blank. How would you fill in that blank? For me, for, for Jordan, to live is what? Is it just like Paul? Is it, is it to live is Christ? Is it really centered around Jesus, or is it centered around something else? One author gives us this perfect picture of, of the implications of this exercise. He says this, Everyone must fill in this blank personally. How would you complete this sentence? For me, to, for me, living is blank. It often gets filled in with cheap substitutes, money, sexual pleasure, power, beauty, entertainment, etc. But using the logic of this passage, notice what fills in the second blank. Dying is blank. If you use any of these first ones with these substitutes, if you say living is money, then you would fill in the second blank with dying as being broke. If all you, after all, you can't take it with you. If you say living is sexual pleasure, then you would conclude dying is having no more pleasure. What about power? 
The second blank would be dying as being powerless. What about saying living as beauty? Then you must conclude dying as losing all beauty and rotting. If you live for entertainment, then your gravestone would read dying as having no more fun. What is your blank? For me to live is blank. How would you fill that in? And if you fill in that blank with anything other than Christ, then death is not great gain, as Paul says, but it's actually great loss. That's just logic here. If your life is centered around the things of this earth, then the prospect of death is this crippling fear, not great gain. Alistair Begg, he's a pastor out in Ohio. He says it this way, if all of my earthly joy, or all of my joy is earthly, if all my fulfillment is in my marriage as much as I might love my wife, if all that thrills my soul is my kids rather than Jesus, if all of my identity is wrapped in, in my position or my prominence or my influence, then the prospect of going to see Jesus is nothing much because we'll have to leave all that behind. And that brings us to the crucial question of this passage. When is death gain? It's when Christ is all. It's when Christ is all. That's the heart of this passage. When Christ is all, death becomes gain. But if Christ is not all, but if something else is the center of our lives, then death is great loss. When Christ is all, death is gain. Paul's singular commitment in his life, his resolve was to make much of Jesus in his life. What about you? Do you live in such a way to adorn the gospel? Are you concerned with the name of Jesus with your life? How you represent him? Where does, the, where does concern for the name of Jesus rank in your priorities in life? Do you live to, to bring a smile to his face? Paul's longing, this, this all-consuming passion in his life, is to be with Jesus. What about you? What's the all-consuming passion of your life for me to live as blank? Does the fruit of your life line up with what you just said? George Whitfield, he was a, an evangelist in the early 1700s. He was uh, actually a prominent part of, of this worldwide um, revival called the, the Great Awakening. And a part of, of George Whitfield's history is that he actually helped start the Methodist movement in the UK in the early 1700s. And, and as unfortunately, as, as these kind of things often go, there began to be these divisions in the Methodist movement. Um, people began to, to side either with George Whitfield or John Wesley, the other um, big name in, in Methodism at that time. And, and, and Whitfield could, could see that, that a, a division was on the horizon. And so in, in order to, to maintain the unity of this gospel movement, Whitfield actually, he resigned from all of his leadership positions in, in Methodism and just said, I, I want us all to follow um, the, the leadership of, of John Wesley. And, and after he did that, some of his, um, his followers, some of his closest friends actually came up to him and, and, and urged him to, to recant and, and actually take back his positions of leadership. And, and their argument was that if you don't do that, then the name of George Whitfield will be forgotten in history forever. No one will remember you. 
And there was a response. It's just so powerful how he responded. He, he just simply said, my name, let the name of Whitfield perish if only the name of Christ be glorified. When is death gain? It's when Christ is all. May that be so of us. Let's pray. Lord, we humbly ask that you would, through your spirit, that you would enable us to be a people who respond to this passage in faith. That your spirit would continually remind us of the confidence that we have in you because of what Jesus has done for us. And also, God, that, that you would continually bring to mind this concern with your glory and with, with the honor of your name, that we would adorn the gospel with our lives. God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us, no matter how mature we are in our faith or, or whether we even have faith or not, that you would stir or cultivate within each and every one of us this, this longing that grows day by day by day to be with you. And as we long for that, God, that you would actually help us to see how we can be faithful today because of our confidence about tomorrow. God, help us to be faithful ministers and stewards of the lives that you have given to us to serve and love others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.